to shine a light to those who need to hear it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My own now. There you go. Elementary age kids are below. We love them to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine Kids. Time right out these doors. Follow Mr. Patrick. And when, if you have uh, middle school age or uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, we love them to be a part of what we have going on. We have stuff happening out there in the foyer for that age group as well. Before we dive into the word, uh, we're going to take a little quick diversion. Uh, this Sunday is kind of what is considered across the globe as World Orphan Sunday. It's a, a Sunday where the collective church gathers together and celebrates <clears throat> God's heart for um, the marginalized, the fatherless, and the um, kind of outcast picture of children around the world. If you read scripture at any point in time, you will see that God has a heartbeat for the marginalized, for the fatherless, for the widow. Over and over again in scripture, we see God's call for the church and for people that follow him to care for those. And the church is called to have a heart for the orphan. And being a part of Orphan Sunday means that we want to be a church that has a heart for the marginalized, um, the abandoned, the orphaned child. Uh, across the world, there are 150 million orphans that have either lost one or both parents. You know, if you think about that in its context, our state only has 4 million people, but there are 150 million orphans across the world. There are 430,000 kids in the foster care system in Oklahoma. In our county alone, there's almost 10,000, right? And so it is a massive problem, uh, and we have the ability as the church to love those that have been pushed to the sides that are the most vulnerable. In our little community, we have 12 families that are already committed to fostering or adoption or respite care or working with vulnerable children in those categories. And so it's a, it's a thing that's really close to our heart. In fact, we spent a lot of time in the, uh, in the last spring kind of talking about it and sharing stories about it. And so we're going to show a little video real quickly about Orphan Sunday. Then I'm going to invite Barbara Bingham to come up and share her heartbeat uh, and her story with vulnerable children. And then we're going to dive into our text this morning. Let's take a look at this. Good morning. I'm happy to be up here to talk about this. Start simple, start small, and pray. And 
we, all of us involved with any sort of ministry in, in, um, with vulnerable children certainly cover your prayers. But today I'm here to tell you a little bit about how I came to be specifically involved with um, supporting orphans and children in the foster care system through my role as a CASA volunteer. And that's a little um, less known aspect of foster care, so I wanted to share that with you today and, and tell you how that came about. So throughout my entire life, from the time I was a teenager through today, God has continually placed me in um, situations where I'm walking right alongside children and their families, whether it be children with special needs or children in their families who live in um, areas of poverty or just any other sort of um, aspect of their life that causes them to be vulnerable to the many things that can cause harm and problems with children as they're growing up to be adults and successful in society. And so that's just where I've been, right smack in the middle of that. And um, recently, um, I, well, the last several years I taught in the School for the Deaf, which was in Edmond, Oklahoma, and a couple of years ago, the last year that I ended up being my last year to teach, I'd been there for 10 years, it just became clear to me that it was time for me to leave, to move on, it's nothing, you know, just kind of happened, and so I did. I didn't really know what I was doing, I just finished up that school year and left and was like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but um, something will come about, and so I um, continued, I've been really involved through the years through the Novo Bible Club, and as we, as the church, as Treb mentioned, um, have had various things through the years about foster care and about foster children, and I wondered um, how that would impact us, how personally that could, uh, I could be involved, but like I said, I was working full-time, and I was involved with the Bible Club, and, and that really seemed to be enough in addition to all the other things, you know, you do with family and church and what all. So that really seemed to be enough. But then, like I said, um, it became clear that it was time for me to move on from my job. And so I did. And I, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing, but I felt like the Lord would tell me. So I left and um, continued to be really involved in the Bible Club program. And there I began to really begin to see how families and children are impacted by drugs and alcohol in real concrete ways, by how families and children are impacted when a parent is in prison, and what happens when a child is placed into the foster care system, and how that obviously no, no, not only impacts the child, but impacts the family and all the people around them. So that just began to weigh on my heart, and then um, I began to look pretty seriously after a while after I quit to find something else to do. I felt like the Lord was leading me, and again, I didn't know what it was, but as I looked and listened and prayed, I really felt like he was saying to me, you need to stretch, you need to do something that you haven't done before, and something that's going to be kind of hard, and so, you know, really that was kind of intimidating, and I was like, okay, but in the same time with that process, I also felt very clearly that he was just saying, trust me to walk with you, whatever it is, I'm going to be walking right alongside with you, so... I talked to people, and as it came, I began to be aware of the CASA program and looked a little bit into that and decided that I wanted to apply and go through that um, training process. And so CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate, and we are specifically appointed by the court to be a voice for the children who are in the foster care system, particularly when they are in court for those hearings that their parents have to go through and that they have to go through as their um, case proceeds. And so we're appointed, you have to be 21 or older, you have to be able to pass a background check, you have to be able to finish the um, training, you have to have enough flexibility in your job or your schoolwork that you can give oh, 10 or 12 hours a month. So it's not a huge time commitment, but you have to be able to do that to go and talk with the child, to talk with the families, to just investigate and learn all about the case. And then of course you have to go to court when it's time um, 
for the hearing. And, you know, I'd been blessed. I'd never been in court before. And so that was a whole new experience. That was the first stretch, was having to walk in and being able to understand how you address the judge and how you act in court and that sort of thing. And so that was a big stretch. But anyway, so... Um, the CASA volunteer does all those things specifically with the child and for the child to be the voice. But the most important thing that a CASA does is to make a difference in that child's life, not only through speaking in court, but by being a consistent person in that child's life day after day. Unfortunately, because of turnovers with professionals that work with the children, or even their foster care placements, or they're in shelters, or wherever they are, they don't have consistency in the people that are in their lives. And the CASA is appointed from the beginning or whenever they come into the case until the end. And so you are able to be there on a regular basis with the child. And typically the CASA is probably the one that knows the child the best. So that's one of the most you know, cool things about it is you get to spend time with the child and make a difference. As I mentioned before, that I felt like the Lord was causing me and telling me I was going to stretch. And one of those things and, and what became very clear to me was that part of stretching included being vulnerable and facing it makes me emotional because it's, it's hard. It's facing the tragedy, the sadness, the darkness that is involved with these children because if it weren't for that awful thing that's happened to them, they wouldn't even be in the system. And so that, was, that is and was really hard. It's a challenging, but again, I know the Lord's walking with me, but also what he made clear to me and is still very clear to me that there is hope and light in that, even in that darkness, there's hope when the family is able to make changes and do the right thing that they need to do to be reunified with their children and that their family can, can become whole again. There's hope and light when people like the 12 families that Trev mentioned in this church and other places step in to be foster families or to be respite or to just bring dinner or just to be a friend to those children. That gives us hope and light. There's hope and light when a child is placed into a forever family and God is able to make new and renew that child and repair and restore that brokenness. So there's a huge need for the children in foster care to have people who love and care for them deeply. People like Casas, people like friends and big brothers and that sort of thing. There's a huge need for foster families who care deeply and will love these children like God has shown us how to do. Um, Treb mentioned the statistic, there are lots and lots of children in Oklahoma County who are in the foster care system. There are not enough foster homes in Oklahoma County for those Oklahoma County children to stay in Oklahoma County. Often they have to place children outside of the county. Of those numbers, about 750 do have a CASA volunteer at this point. It would be wonderful if they could all have a CASA volunteer. It's a deep, deep need. So for me to be a CASA volunteer is really my tangible way of being able to go out and support children in the foster care system in a little different way. And um, like I said, when I started, we got covet your prayers. I covet your prayers for me, for my foster care children, for all the foster care children that are in the system. And we thank you. Thank you, Barbara. So if you are interested um, in just kind of learning more and uh, how you can get involved, on the back, in the back of the room there by our little prayer area, there is a white sheet of paper, uh, both sides. One side of it, uh, Brandon put this together for us, uh, has just statistics and information about not just Orphan Sunday, but about what the world orphan crisis looks like, what it's like here in Oklahoma, what foster care is, and how to get involved, and just all kinds of things. 
And what we're asking is that there are four weeks on here on the very back. It's just a prayer sheet, and it's got four weeks, and it it gives you something each week to pray for. That as a community, as a church, we would say, you know what, we're going to put this on our refrigerator. And as we sit down to eat dinner as a family, or as I go about my daily prayer time, we're going to commit together to praying for these four things on this week. And we're going to begin with week one, and then we're going to walk ourselves all the way to that first week of December, just saying, God, as a community, we want to pray specifically for these things as it kind of equates to the world orphan crisis and your heart uh, as God the Father for the marginalized and the fatherless. So uh, it's a huge, huge part of the heartbeat of God and therefore has to be a huge part of the church's heartbeat as well. So that being said, thank you, Barbara, for sharing your story. We, we have a dozen families in here that have been radically impacted by fostering and adoption, and each one of them would have loved to have shared their story, and so we're, we're very grateful for, for that. Um, so you can pick one of those up on your way out, please do. So we're shifting gears, and, and we're going to kind of move through this quickly because we've kind of eaten up a lot of our, of our time this morning, but we're going to wrap up chapter 8 in the book of John. So for those of you that are here for the first time, we've been going through the book of John for almost 35 weeks now. Uh, we've taken a couple of breaks here or there. Uh, we have made it through the end of chapter 8 after this week, and we are kind of doing this verse-by-verse journey, really exploring what John is telling us about the person of Jesus Christ. And essentially, it's this, Jesus is God. The entire message of John's gospel is that he wants us to see that Jesus is the incarnation, the embodiment of God in the flesh that has come to walk this earth to save humanity. That is the point of the gospel. It is not a history of Jesus. It is the retelling of the incarnation and that Jesus stepped in to this world as the embodiment of God to redeem humanity. And so that's John's entire focus. And the first part of his gospel was really leading us into this introduction to the theology behind Jesus as God. And John showed us all kinds of miracles and things to get us there. Well, the second part is is the tide begins to shift and humanity, the humanity that Jesus breathed life life into, the creation itself turns against God, against Jesus, and they begin to become angry and eventually will arrest and crucify and kill him. And we have entered into that contentious period where the creation that God has made has now swelled against him and is, the tide is beginning to turn. Uh, we started a little look in chapter uh, 8, this little interaction that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and the Jewish influencers. Um, we started, it's taking us three weeks. We looked at it five weeks ago when we started because we took a little break and therefore uh, our More Than Enough series. But Carson started us in that conversation, and we're going to wrap it up. But it's all one interaction, a really kind of powerful interaction that Jesus is having with these Pharisees because some of them had been telling people they believed in Jesus. But their lives were not measuring up. And so what John says in chapter 8, in verse 31, he says, To those Jews that claim to believe in Jesus, Jesus said to them, he said, Listen, if you hold to my teaching, then you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And they get all incensed, and they're like, What do you mean we will be set free? We are children of Abraham. We have never been slaves to anyone, right? Which is, of course, ridiculous because they were all slaves in Egypt and now they're even under Roman occupation. But nonetheless, right? They said, We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? And Jesus says, If you were really Abraham's descendants, you would love the things that Abraham loves, but you don't. You're trying to kill me. In fact, Abraham's not your father, God's not your father. Your true father is the enemy, is Satan, is the devil, right? He actually tells him that. We explored that last week, that he looks at those Pharisees and Jewish influencers and he says, your father is not Abraham. Your father is not God. Your father is the devil and he is the father of lies. And the reason you don't believe the things that I'm saying is because I'm talking truth 
and it's not your language. You don't understand me because I speak truth. You only understand lies because that is your nature and that is your native language. And last week we looked at some truths there in that interaction where we talked about the, the reality of Satan, right? That he is a very powerful and real force and not some metaphor for bad things. And that if we've adopted a theology that looks at sin and evil as Satan as some kind of blanket for bad things, we're not only misguided, we're in danger. Satan is real. The Bible's very specific about it, and he's very powerful, and we explored that. We also talked about the nature of our fallen, sinful humanity, that our native language is lies and deception. It's not good and moral things. It is lies and deception. And the only way out of that, right, is through redemption through Jesus Christ. And we talked, our third point was God is the only revealer of that truth. We don't come to that discovery on our own, but God reveals that. Faith is a gift, and we went through all those kind of things. Well, this morning, we're picking up right in the middle of that, and the Pharisees, I can't explain to you how angry they are. In fact, they are going to be so angry today that at Jesus' words, they are going to bend down, and out of the dirt, they're going to pick up rocks, and they're going to try and kill him, literally smash him to death with rocks. That's how incensed they are. So we're in that same interaction, and we're going to look at three claims that Jesus makes about himself and how that turns the entirety of history upside down. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then I want you to jump back into John chapter 8, and we're going to kind of motor through this stuff um, this morning. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. God, you are, you are good. You are, you are good, and you love us, and you have sent your Son to redeem us, and God, you have given the life of your Son, Jesus, that we might know you, holy creator God. Lord, none of us, not a single person in this room has done anything to deserve that. Not a thing. In fact, our native language in life leads us in an opposite direction of you. And yet, God, you love us anyway. And so, Father, we gather this morning to worship you and to open your word and to ask you to teach us about your character and about your nature. Take a moment in your own heart. Just invite God to teach your heart. Just ask him to teach you about himself this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you as we do each week. Pray that God would teach them. He would instruct them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if you don't know that person's name, just whisper that God, the God of the universe, would speak to their heart. Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We know and deeply believe that you are the revealer of all truth. That means we cannot open your word and understand it. Your Holy Spirit has got to instruct our hearts. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that this morning as we open your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to pick up in 848, and we're going to go through the end of that chapter. And you've got to remember that Jesus is essentially has just told them that they don't belong to God. In fact, he looked at these Jewish leaders, these Jewish influencers, and he says, he who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Okay, that's what he has just spoken. Their response comes in 48. In fact, they're going to have three accusations, and Jesus is going to have three responses. And in those three responses, we're going to look at the claims that Jesus makes about himself. But let's look at the text first. So they respond to that statement about knowing God by saying this. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. 
I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did all the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, we will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. You are not 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but he hid himself and slipped away through the temple grounds. So things escalate quite a bit, and you're going to see why, because Jesus goes with a death blow and just infuriates everybody in the crowd. But what's really remarkable about this is that he makes some really distinct claims about himself, right? And we're going to get to those. But here's kind of what happened, is that Jesus says, you don't belong to God because you don't understand the things that God is saying, because you can't hear God, because I speak truth and you only understand lies. And they lose it. And they say, oh, yeah, well, we're right because you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed, right? Which kind of comes out of the blue, right? I mean, really, it's funny because in all of John, in all of the four Gospels, at some point in time, Jesus' hearers, the people that hear him, equate him to being demon-possessed or in line with or in cahoots with the devil on some level, which means that Jesus' teaching was so radical on some point that the people that heard him believed, believed that he was doing something that was in line with the enemy. It was so countercultural that he was either in line with or teaching or possessed by a demon, right? Which goes, if you ascribe to some understanding of Jesus as a meek rabbi wandering around the Judean countryside hugging babies and telling everybody to sing Kumbaya, you're not reading your Bible. Jesus was a revolutionary that kind of turned over culture. In fact, culture was so incensed that they called him demon-possessed. And these guys called him a Samaritan, right? When that was basically saying, you're not even from the right tribe. You're from that people group north of us that everybody hates because there's a mixed race up there and we don't want anything to do with them. You're from them, right? I guess that's an insult. Jesus doesn't even pay a lick of attention to it. In fact, he doesn't even address it. He just says, I'm not demon-possessed. You want to know why? Because I exist to glorify the Father. There's no demon or someone from the enemy that would exist to glorify God. They would exist to glorify themselves, the enemy, or sin. But I am here to glorify the Father, and you don't know him. So Jesus responds to their accusations of being demon-possessed by basically saying, I can't be possessed by a demon because I exist to glorify God. That's why I'm here. And I will tell you the truth on top of that. If you keep my word, right, you will never see death. And of course, the Pharisees and leaders are thinking so worldly and and like they always do. They're not understanding that Jesus is, of course, talking eternal. They are talking physical, and their rebuttal or their response is, now we know you're flat out crazy. We know that you're demon-possessed. You don't want to know why? Because Abraham died, and so did all the prophets. Do you think you're better than Abraham? He's dead. You're telling us you are better than him and no one that, or everyone that hears your word is never going to taste death, but Abraham and all the prophets, they died. Who do you think you are? And you can see what they're saying. They're basically saying, you just told us that if we keep your word, we never die. 
Yet Abraham, who was the greatest, right, who was chosen by God, right, he's dead. And you know what? Every amazing and great prophet, they're all dead. You think you're better than him? Is that what you're telling us? You're better than Abraham, right? And Jesus, which of course, of course, the irony there is Jesus is better than Abraham. But he says, if I glorify myself, it means nothing. My father whom you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me, right? He said, if I didn't know God, I would actually tell you I was a liar. But I do know God. Your father, him rejo- your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he's glad. So Jesus says, oh yeah, listen to this. I exist to glorify God, and God is glorified through me. And Abraham, who you claim as your father, right? Abraham, who you claim as your father, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it, and he is glad. And Jesus seems to be making a really important point here. And in order to understand it, you've got to understand a little bit of what's happening in the Old Testament and the Abrahamic Abrahamic covenant that unfolded with God. So way back in Genesis, right, God takes this guy named Abram who would later become Abraham and he calls him into this covenant relationship and he basically tells Abraham, he says, listen, I'm going to take you and your family and I want you to go to a land that I am going to give to you, which would later become the promised land because it was promised by God to Abraham. I want you to go to that land that I will show you and I will make you Great. I will bless you and you will bless others and I will make a great nation from you. In fact, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. And this is the the promise that he makes to Abraham. It is the beginning of the nation of Israel and ultimately the promise for all of us that God was going to redeem humanity. And so he makes this covenant with Abraham that says, I will, be, I will make you a blessing and you will bless those and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you, Abraham. So he makes this covenant with them. And what Jesus seems to be saying is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this covenant that was made to Abraham all those years ago. That anyone, right, that anyone who keeps the word of Christ will never taste death. That he seems to be the fulfillment of this covenant that God made with Abraham all those years ago. And Abraham knew that God was beginning a great work and that now being with God was glad to see it happen. He's saying, your father Abraham knew of this day, the day that God would redeem all of human history through the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe Abraham didn't know how it was going to lay out, but he knew that promise meant that God was going to do this for all of humanity. And now he is seated with the Father, and he is glad that redemptive history has moved through me. That's what he says to the Jewish people, right? And of course, they don't get that. Listen to their reply. You're only 50 years old, or you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham, right? Because he said that Abraham saw this day. And they're going, what? You're not even 50. Abraham would be 2,000 years older than you. You're ridiculous, right? Because, of course, all they're thinking about is these worldly, cultural, temporal connections. And Jesus is, of course, talking about the scope of redemptive history. And he says, you're not 50 years old, right? How could you ever have seen Abraham, you idiot, is essentially what they're saying. At this, right, right, then Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. At this, they picked up stones to throw throw at him, but Jesus slipped through the crowd. At that moment, in that statement, Everything goes from angry, contentious argument to we're going to kill you. 
because they understood, and I'll unpack this in just a moment, the claim that Jesus was making when he said, before Abraham was, right? Before Abraham was ever a thought, was ever an existence, ever happened. Before he ever was, I am. And that statement is going to be really powerful. It's going to take us all the way back to Exodus 3. But he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was, meaning I existed just before Abraham. He makes a divine claim by saying, before Abraham was, I am. And I'll take you to that moment. And they lose their minds. I mean, what, what can you imagine an argument that you're having maybe with your neighbor about politics or about whatever, and it goes from, we're pretty mad at each other, to I'm going to beat you in the head with a rock. Like literally that statement turned that corner with those people, and they were ready to kill him. And it says that they couldn't because Jesus looked at the crowd. You remember? Because it was not yet his time. Humanity will never kill God, right? God will voluntarily give himself up at his appointed time, but humanity will never seize God. Very important theologically. And so Jesus shifts his way through the crowd. No rocks come, and he's gone like that. Now, all that really quickly to get us to a couple of things I want you to hear this morning before we get out here. And they're really powerful, amazing claims that Jesus makes about himself that are buried in this text that move us from just this argument to a death squad. And they actually turn all of human history upside down if we believe these things about Jesus. All right? The first one he claims, and he makes these claims in each of the rebuttals to their accusations. And the first thing he claims is he basically says, I am eternal life right? Which is what our entire series is built on. This entire series of the book of John is basically now is the time or, or really is the idea of this is eternal life, right? Like I am eternal life. Jesus makes these eternal claims that are really important. And he says at the end there, he says of that, of that claim, when they say you are demon possessed, he says, I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see Death And Jesus is making a really powerful claim about eternal life. And it's going to be followed up in John 17, where he says in John 17, 3, I, I am, right, eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, that anyone who believes in me and the one who sent me shall have eternal life. Jesus makes claims throughout this gospel that he is the access point to all eternal life, that there is no other life aside from him. And he says it here, that if you keep his word, you will never taste death. Now that is not talking about keeping Jesus like the words that he says, but the word there is the idea of the embodiment of all that Jesus has spoken and is. If you go back to John 1.1, the very first verse in the very first chapter of our book, John says this, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he's talking about the embodiment of who he is, they will never taste death. And of course, Jesus isn't referring to those there that are going to die in a few years of old age or natural causes or whatever. He's referring to a spiritual death because every single one of us, you and I, are slated for eternal destruction. Because of the sin in our lives, the garbage in our life, we are walking down a path of eternal destruction. It is where we are headed because it is our nature and there is no way out of it. No moralistic living, no way of proving yourself, no amount of saying three Hail Marys and going to church seven times a week or whatever. None of that will get you out of your destiny to spend eternity separated from God. Eternal damnation, destruction because of our sinful nature. So God and his infinite, incredible, redemptive movements through history sends Jesus as the culmination of all of his works, that if anyone 
holds to the word of Christ, believes and put their faith in Jesus, they will never taste death. Death by sin. They will have eternal life. Jesus is claiming that he is eternal life. It's a claim that he's made multiple times, right? But he looks right here to this crowd of angry people and he says, I am the only answer to death. So Jesus' first claim is that he is eternal life, right? The second one kind of follows up in that vein and they kind of get all up in him and they're like, why are you thinking you're better than Abraham, right? You, Abraham died and you're saying that no one will taste death if they believe in you. You're not better than Abraham or better than the prophets, right? And Jesus, of course, says to them, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing me and he saw it and he was glad. Jesus is making a really important point here about his role and who he is in redemptive history. Now, I've said this before, and it's worth saying again, but not by showing your hands, but how many people actually thought that Christ was Jesus' last name? Like his middle name was Marvin, right? Like Jesus, Marvin, Christ, or whatever. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. It's a Greek word that means Christos, right? Which is, means the anointed one of God. It's equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. They both mean the anointed one one of God. It's actually a title. It's a messianic title because the whole of the Old Testament points to the notion that God was going to send a Messiah to redeem Israel, to become king of Israel. And the people believed that Messiah was going to be a political king. They believed he was going to come in the line of David, right through the line of Abraham, into the line of David, through the line, reestablish Israel as a political powerhouse and carry them to the nation they once were. And that's what they believed. But when you begin to read scripture and you begin to read the, the law and the prophets, you begin to see that God's picture of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Holy One of God was different. Not a conquering political hero that would come riding into town on the back of a chariot, overthrowing the Romans or whatever oppressors there were at the time, but a Messiah that came in to become the Prince of Peace. The Messiah that would ride into town on the back of a baby donkey, right? The Messiah to who the wise men would show up in the middle of the night at a stable somewhere and lay down gifts, right, in the back of a barn. God's movement of the Messiah was different. But Jesus makes this claim. He says, Abraham, right, knew of this day, that he knew that God was doing something amazing through him, and he makes this covenant with him, and he sits on the, with the Father, and he rejoices because the whole of this movement is brought to fruition in me. And Jesus essentially is claiming, I am the Messiah. I am the end of the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant that God made with Abraham to bless all the nations of earth from Abraham's line, that is me. I came from that line to redeem all of human history. I am the culmination of the covenant that God made with Abraham. I am the anointed one, right? The one that God has chosen and placed here. Now, the Jews, they were waiting on the Messiah. In fact, Jewish people today are still waiting on the Messiah. And Jesus says, I am he. I am the Messiah, which, of course, turns at that moment all of human history over because Judaism and Christianity now are going to diverge on that point alone, that Jesus is the Messiah sent by God, the anointed one, to redeem all of humanity. And it diverges and splits Christianity from Judaism. So Jesus says, I not only bring eternal life, but I am eternal life. Then he says, I not only know the Messiah, but I am the Messiah, and I exist to glorify God, and all of humanity will know life through me. 
And the final claim he makes is a really, really incredible one. And I wish we had just decades to go through this, but it's so powerful. Well, they're incensed and they're angry, right? And they're like, you're not 50 years old. I mean, how in the world did you see Abraham? They're just, they don't get it. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, in order to understand this, you've really got to understand the nature of God and what God was doing in the lives of the Israelite people when he called Abraham and Moses and the fathers to lead this incredible nation, right? But God makes a claim about himself in Exodus 3 to Moses that changes the dynamic of how we understand and see God. And I want to read it to you because it's just that powerful. And it comes out of Exodus chapter 3, and you don't have to go there unless you want to. Um, But I want to read it to you because to paraphrase it is, well, it's just embarrassing because it's just so powerful the way, of course, that it is written. But Moses, as you remember, was raised in the household of Pharaoh. He, you know, had grown up there. He basically killed a guy defending one of his own countrymen and fled to the wilderness. And God is going to use Moses to bring his people that were in captivity in Egypt under Pharaoh because of their disobedience years and years before. He's going to use Moses to bring them out of uh, captivity and into the land that he had promised Abraham centuries before. And Moses is out tending the flock, and this is what happens in Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock with Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight and why this bush does not burn up. When, the, when God, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out into a land, good and spacious land, flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, um, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are pressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be my sign. To you, that it is I who have sent you. When you go and have brought the people out of Egypt, you will, they will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Every time I read that passage, I literally feel my sort of my life just have these chill bumps because it just resonates with the holiness of God. Moses going, who am I? 
I'm basically hiding from those people, and yet you're calling me to draw them out. What if I go to them and they say, what is the name of the God that sent you? Right? He goes, what do I tell them? And God, through that burning bush where Moses has no shoes on and he's hiding his face because of the holiness and majesty of God, God says, tell them that I am who I am, that the I am has sent you. So Jesus, right, in this incredible moment, they say, you're not 50. How do you know Abraham? You don't know him. He, you're not near old enough, right? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, before he was ever a thought, I am. And, and they knew at that moment what Jesus was claiming because they picked up rocks. If Jesus had wanted to just simply say, I existed before Abraham, he would have used an entirely different Greek sentence, which would have said, before Abraham, I was. But the grammar is really different. He makes an intentional moment to say, before Abraham was, I am. Equating himself with God's name, Right there in Exodus, before Abraham was, I am the I am. You're calling into question me? Listen to who I am. I am the God that called Moses through the burning bush, that delivered the people out of slavery. I am the I am. And the people lose it. And there's a really powerful thing here that I think that most of us miss. And it's just a, a side little note for us to think about. But we are so hung up in our culture and being able to identify with God on our terms. And we have ejected the theology, the holiness of God for the most of our churches. Because we don't like a God, right, who is majestic and holy and mighty and infinite and incredible. We like a God who we can relate to and call our friend and call our buddy and he understands me and he gets it and he's okay with my messing up. But the God of scripture is powerful and mighty and people look upon him and their hair goes white and they die and they fall down and the thunders of his voice, entire nations scatter. God is mighty and he is holy and he is just. And this picture reminds me that we have created a God to placate our cultural desires. But God is holy. And your sin is not a joke. It's not something God laughs at and just says, oh, you'll get better when you're 30 and have kids. No, God hates sin. And God in his infinite, incredible holiness appears to Moses in this bush and he says, take your shoes off because I am holy. And in that moment where Jesus stands with these Pharisees, he says, I am that God. And humanity that God created, that God breathed life into their lungs, that the psalmist tells us that he knit them together in their mother's womb. You, that humanity, reached into the dirt to pick up rocks to attempt to kill God. That's how deep and real our sin goes that we don't like that claim to holiness, and so we will do anything we can to end it. And these claims that Jesus makes here are going to send him to the cross. I am eternal life. I am the Messiah. And I am the I am. And that's it. From this point in time in human history, everything leads to Jesus' death. Because humanity does not want to deal with the reality of the holiness of God. The powerful statement here in all this for us, right, is that how do we deal with these claims of Jesus? How do they turn our lives upside down? 
How do we deal with the claim that Jesus says that if we hold to his word, we'll never see death? That he is the one that God has sent through all of redemptive history, all of redemptive history to save it, to save anyone that would put their trust and hope in him. Do we deal with those two claims by creating a God in our mind that kind of placates to our sort of feel-good theology? Or do we understand the nature of what Jesus is saying here and realize that it, we are absolutely dead without God's beautiful and incredible redemptive holiness that exchanges our sin for his glory. And that God is not playing games and that he desires our life and that our holiness, that his holiness should drive us to worship. That God, I did nothing to deserve anything, yet you love me anyway. In fact, my nature is to try and kill you. Whether that's physically trying to kill you or whether trying to kill the idea of you. My nature wants to destroy that. The same way the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, our nature wants to destroy the idea of God. Because we are children of the father of lies. But the holiness of God should terrify us enough in a holy, reverent kind of way. Shake the shoes off our feet and make our hair go white to say, God, I want to know you. To surrender our life to the God that would redeem all of human history. That claim is going to send Jesus to the cross. What we're going to see unfold over the next weeks is how those truths play out and how they change life for you and for me. Let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll close our time in worship. Lord, I thank you for your word that is inexhaustibly filled with love and grace and mercy. Yet at the very same time, God, it is filled with just justice and wrath and power. And God, I confess, and I know that there's a lot of us in here that would confess that we have created an image and understanding of you that we can handle one that does away with your holiness and your righteousness and your majesty and your power and has exchanged that for one that is an accessible picture of God that fits into our daily understanding of you, that doesn't cause us to shudder or move or change. And it's not a biblical picture. The holiness of God should reorient our lives at every moment. So, Lord, we come before you and we ask you to convict our hearts of our sin, of our struggle, of our lies, of our failures. God, just to convict us and say that you have come to redeem us from those things. That through Jesus, we have new life in Christ. That, God, you have taken our sin and you have separated them. As far as the east is from the west, you have covered us with your glory and your righteousness. And not one of us did that on our own. You did that for us. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, really what we're saying is that you are a holy, majestic God that came to save us and do what we couldn't do for ourselves, and you deserve our worship. And so as we close our time in singing, that is what we are proclaiming, that you are the eternal God, that you are the Messiah, and that you are the great I Am. We cry these things out in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship.